Scene 2. Boy, I'm glad I did those kid shows. Rudy Kobe. Read by Joshua Stenkamp, following original audio recording. The buzz of my alarm clock woke me. Between the time chains of traveling from Orlando and a night out in Las Vegas, I had finally gotten a decent night of sleep. Instinctively reaching for the snooze button, I realized the clock read 10 a.m. In just 30 minutes, I would be meeting a man that was a childhood hero. Rudy Kobe isn't a name the average person knows, but in the world of magic, he is, quote, the coolest magician on planet Earth. Hayes, I put myself together as best I could, then headed to the lobby. The hotel kindly offered guests something resembling the coffee in color, not so much in taste. Unaware of what I was about to experience, I took my first sip. Quantity over quality, I thought, and took another swig. Beverage in hand, I walked outside to a rainy Las Vegas day. My mind began to wander as I pondered the flow of traffic. Which passing car would Rudy get out of? The Honda? That yellow Hummer? No. Then I thought maybe he'd be driving a giant sneaker. Daydreaming of what that must be like, I almost missed the arrival of a small German manufactured car. The door swung open, and an almost impossibly tall man with almost impossibly tall hair unfolded himself from the interior. I instantly recognized him. He pointed at my Millennium Falcon t-shirt, nodded, and smiled. We shook hands. I thanked him for being a part of the book. We started heading through the lobby. We chatted about my flight, his drive over, and other pleasantries. Arriving at the interview space, we chose our seats and began. All right, we're on our second interview with uh, Mr. Rudy Kobe, which uh, I'm having the pleasure. How are you today? Very good. Good. Uh, we always start off super simple. I always ask a stupid question to lighten the mood. Boxers, briefs, or full commando? <sighs> well, definitely. Well, I think boxer briefs. That's boxer are, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not boxers are comfy. Don't write up. Yeah, no one wears feel. no one wears briefs unless you're an idiot <laughs> or, or uh, you know, Walter White, you know, <laughs> which is cool on him. And and boxers, that's just a little too much freedom, you know. So boxer briefs, boxer briefs, the, happy yeah. medium. Yeah. So what um, what got you into magic? Well, I used to draw comic books when I was a little kid, but like really intense comic book. I was a big fan of Mad Magazine and Famous Monsters of Filmland Magazine. And uh, so I drew my own comic books when I was very young. I mean, there'd be literally a thousand pages long. That was the longest one I ever did. I was just, you know, ADHD, whatever. And and, uh, and then I progressed to making sort of Super 8 movies. Um, you know, monster movies and Thrills, spills, bumps, and bruises was my, my <laughs> magnus opus at eight years old. And then at nine years old, uh, I saw Alice Cooper on TV on uh, Don Kirshner's rock concert. And uh, he did the guillotine, you know, and he cut his head off. And I, you know, I freaked out because it was, I, it was everything I wanted to do with my movies and with my comic books, you know, except that it was happening live right there in real time, you know. And um, it just had an effect on me. And so I, uh, you know, because with Super 8 movies, I could cut someone's head off, but I have to not just edit stuff together, but I have to, back then, you have to send the rolls of film away. It would take three weeks to come back. back. You know, it wasn't like now, you know. So, uh, yeah, so it was like, to me, it was instant magic, you know. And uh, so I asked my mom about, you know, and she said, oh, that's magic, you know, basically. And uh, and it was Christmas right around the corner, so she got me a magic kit. 
and uh, yeah, and I got the TV, the Marshall Brodeen mm-hmm. TV Magic Kit. Uh, my mom let me open one present the night before Christmas. I opened that one because I knew kind of what it was going to be. Yeah, and uh, and never, I don't think I opened my other presents the next day. And my uh, the Magic Kit didn't have the instructions. You know, we got the last one at Wolverston. Someone had stolen the instructions. So um, uh, I think there were actually Japanese, some some weird Japanese instructions, something. I, you know, and, but what I did was I sort of figured out the stuff uh, on my own. And then, you know, I had billiard balls and I painted them like eyeballs and pulled my eyeballs out. Do you you think that was... That was the best that you didn't have the instructions? It was the greatest thing. Made it your own. There was no pattern. There was no pitch to it. And you just made it your own. No. And immediately what I did was I took it and made the stuff look like what I wanted to do in my little Super 8 movies, you know. And in a a weird way, that's exactly what um, my progression in magic was, you know. uh, You know, it had a a little book in there that uh, 101 card tricks or whatever. So, I mean, I read that over and over and over and over and over. And that led me to the library, of course, like everyone else. Because I I come from not a rich family. And um, so I did um, typically what people do. We I went to the library and checked out every single book a million times. The Amateur Magician's Handbook, you know, mm-hmm. those big, thick ones. And just, again, I was, you know, OCD. I learned Everything. I mean, everything in that book, you know. And um, and then after that, I found a magic shop in town and progressed sort of this sort of similar to the way that most people would. And then when I was ten or eleven, I entered the Society of American Magicians Magician of the Year contest, and I won like first time out when I was like eleven, ten or eleven, eleven or twelve, something like that. And next year, um, I competed again. So that was like the first David Copperfield special was on the same night. They literally showed the Copperfield special and then it was our Magician of the Year uh, thing. And the second time, this is just New York Magician of the Year, you know, upstate New York. And, uh, but Jeff McBride was in the contest with me also. <laughs> and he was incredible, man. He, you know, he, he did his act and then he went away while we finished the contest and watched David Copperfield and he came back fully expecting his prize. And when he didn't win, he, he was, he was a different, he was a, but it was a different guy back then. You know, Jeff was a, the greatest person. He was a superstar even then, you know, and the act he had done was, incredible manipulation. Of course he should have won, but that taught me about magic contests. (laughs) You know, I mean, I basically did an act that catered to magicians. It was like in-jokes for magicians. And, and, uh, so yeah, life isn't fair. It's amazing. And he was my hero though. And I I used to see Jeff McBride at the, uh, Orange County Fair Mm -hmm. every year. And, um, so I got to see his progression. What was, um, what would you consider like your first gig? What was the first thing that really launched you into your career? Well, um, when I was, I would say when I was 12 years old, I won the contest again and I became bored with magic, you know, because um, uh, I, I used to go down to Tannen's magic shop on the train, just a little kid, you know, yeah. but I was tall and I used to sneak into, I used to do, like rock concerts. So I would sneak into Broadway shows and like Madison Square Garden. I would go see different people. And I saw David Bowie. And David Bowie flabbergasted me. And this was, you know, when I was very young. And I went home, threw away all my magic, all, everything that looked like magic, just from seeing him live, just because 
I was like, I want to be able to come up with something that could open for this. You know what I mean? And the same thing when I saw Prince in Purple Rain, you know, I saw, you know, I wanted to be Morris Day in the time, you know, but I knew there's no, ma- no magic act. Jeff McBride could go on during, you know, in that movie, that fictional club, but very few people could. So I wanted to come up with something, um, that would be as cool as my comic books were, you know what I mean? And was that the creation of Lab Man? That was the creation of Lab Man, you know? I mean, so I one night had a dream of that four-legged character. Woke up in the middle of the night and realized I wasn't watching someone perform. You know, I literally was in, in the dream watching this four-legged performer on stage. And, and I remember in my dream, I was fucking so jealous. <laughs> it was because it was so great. And then a cat jumped on me or something and woke me up in the middle of the night. And, oh, oh, it was just a dream. I went back to sleep and then bolted awake, wrote it, in the, found a piece of paper and a pen, wrote it in a notebook. Next day I woke up, there were 20 pages and I don't remember writing any of it. And that continued for a couple of years. So that was, that was the change. I had this vision of something that was as cool as my comic books and I worked on um, bringing that to the stage, what I saw in my dream. And it took me two or three years because I waited for until I found the right music. And um, I wanted the exact right music. I used to, I knew what the steps were before I actually made the legs. I used to practice it with broomsticks with shoes attached to it. And then um, I used to work, I progressed by then, and I was working at the Orange County Fair one year. You know, Jeff had been there for 10 years. His dad was a lawyer for the fair, and mm-hmm. he was on the posters every year. And every year came back with a different act. He was incredible. Still is, you know, for my money, the best all-around magician in the world. And uh, But then I was going to work at the Orange County Fair, and I was going to be at another tent at the same fair as Jeff McBride. And I was like, i got to step it up. You know, I had my comedy club that I, I – or my uh, comedy act that I did in comedy clubs. Um, but I, I – just stayed up for three or four days straight and made the first version of the legs act out of a waiter stand I stole. Um, I stole, I was working at a, at a, a um, hospital in my hometown as head of security, you know? So I, I stole, yeah, I stole, I stole, I stole my, uh, the red, the green scrub pants for the act and a lab coat, you know? And, um, cause originally the character I saw in my dream was more like a spy, you know, sort of trench coaty. And, um, and I wore checkered sneakers all the time anyway. So it wasn't, it was a total accident that lab man became the scientist rather than the spy, you know. And, uh, then I, uh, made the other things for the act, um, in a couple days, you know, you know, and did it the first time at the Orange County Fair. Two o'clock in the afternoon for three Hells Angels and, and Jeff McBride's, um, Younger brother, Clay McBride, and uh, uh, who's an incredible photographer now, world famous, rock and roll photographer. And I walked off stage, you know, did my three minutes act, walked off stage. And when I did, just the way he was looking at me, I knew my life was cha- my life changed. You know what I mean? Because if, you know, you can impress Jeff McBride's little brother <laughs> at that point. Because Jeff at that point was just becoming the Jeff McBride that we know today, you know. Um, so that was the turning point, was just, you know recognizing that no matter what I did with cards or or uh, any of that stuff at home David Bowie I saw him and he he did he did a number where he sang to a skull he wore sunglasses and sang to a skull cracked actor Madison Square Garden 
and I had snuck up to the third row, so I was right next to him. And I realized, you know, he was singing a song for 25,000 people. And, you know, I was like, man, anybody in this place would trade places with this old guy, you know? That's what was in my mind, you know? And, uh, and he was 37. I look back and now, it's crazy, you know? And, uh, and I thought he was ancient. But I was like, what he's doing with music is what I want to do with magic, you know? Do you feel that the Lab Man character is the Lab Man character Rudy Colby? Or did you, did you go through basically a character development? When you're on stage, are you... Is Lab Man you, or is it a completely different? No, it's a, that's a great question. Um, it's it's kind of a mix, and I'll tell you why. Um, my one of my favorite movies, if not my favorite movie, Star Wars. You know, and I love. There you go. And and my favorite book, actually, it sounds stupid now because everybody hates George Lucas. I hate the prequels more than anybody else. I hate them, despise them. It almost ruined Star Wars for mm -hmm. me. Um, but the original trilogy, the Star Wars, and I'll sound like a nerd now, but my favorite book came out in 1983, right when Return of the Jedi was about to come out. It's called Skywalking. It's a, it's a, um, biography of George Lucas, but right up until he was still cool, you know, <laughs> um, before he, um, you know, went crazy. And what I love about that, what's really inspiring is, think about Star Wars. You go into the cantina. You know, the cantina, the bar for the non-nerds, the Star Wars bar, as they call it. And it's one of the most incredible scenes in movie history because you walk in this and immediately it's a world, you know. It's, it, it's, not, it's not just um, a scene with bad monster masks. What it is, is the imagination behind the scenes is what struck me. Every single one of those characters in that bar, you could tell they had backstory. You know, when, when uh, they sat down with Han Solo, he's making references to things, the Kessel Run and all this stuff. That everyone else seems to know what he's talking about. But it's just, you know, it, it, there's a world behind the world. And that's what, that's what Lab Man is, you know. That was, Lab Man, I know exactly where Lab Man comes from. Um, I know what his world is because I've written a screenplay for Ladman. There's, you know, I have thousands of backstory, you know, pages of backstory. So that when I, when I, when I did my TV show later, I knew who his assistants were. His assistants weren't, you know, girls that looked like Magic Convention. He had a robot, you know, named Nikki Terminator and his assistant was Adam and, uh, and that was based on my love of the Muppets, you know, with, uh, Beaker and Professor Honeydew, you know, the, the hapless assistant. Um, and I knew when I, when I got my chance to do a TV show, I knew what the set would look like because the guy who drawed my comic book, I just said, I walked into Dick Clark Productions and they said, well, we, what do you want the set to look like? We're, we have the best set designers. And I was meeting with the best set designer in the world, put the comic book down and said, that's what I want. Just pointed to the first page. And he said, that looks great. And that's what ended up on screen. So, um, so I have a vision of what Lab Man is in my head, but. I had a problem. I had this three-minute act that took me around the world, but then I wanted to, you know, make it longer because I wanted the dream. I wanted my own TV special, you know, because um, I grew up watching David Copperfield and Doug Henning. Um, to me, that was the ultimate goal of any magician. That's awesome. He has a Doug Henning tattoo. <laughs> um, but uh, that's what my goal was. So I couldn't do that. With a character, Labman, three minutes when he's cutting his legs off and stuff. When I 
started to branch out and um, perform on stage and to try to make it a longer act, I what does Labman? If you just look at Labman, what would he sound like? You know, and I decided it should be a voice synthesizer. So when I first started talking as Labman, I did I sounded like RoboCop, and it <laughs> looked like it. It really, you know, and I had this great, you know. You know, sound effects thing, and it was like you know, you have ten seconds to comply. You know, it was it was awesome, and and I think I could have made something out of that, but still, um, you know, I put myself through college working comedy clubs. You know, I I can and I put myself through you know, you know, I could do kid shows when I was coming up. You know, I'm mean, a good kid show. I think that you can't be a great stage magician unless you could do a good kid show. As far as you know, really know, knowing how to handle an audience. You know, I, the people that do good kid shows, I worship them. They're incredible. And because um, it taught me how to perform. For everybody. On stage, exactly. Yeah. So I knew, I knew that um, I was a strong performer and I was losing my humanity a little bit, you know. And it was actually Kevin James who suggested, he saw me do the nail at a magic convention in and he was like, that's one of the funniest things I've ever seen. You should do that on stage. And I was like, well, you know, I've done it in comedy club. And he goes, no, you should do that. And what was, it, what's the nail? Because some people are. Oh, so, yeah, the human blockhead where I take okay, a, a, a spike, a, like a, 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 you know. Pound it in the nose. Yeah, like a six inch spike. I pound it in my face. Yeah. And, 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 and back then, no magicians were doing it. <laughs> you know, it's like Harry Anderson with the needle or, you know, or Missy Jonathan with the knife. You know, it's like, I, I understand it. But back then, it was a very unique thing. I learned it from a, you know, Otis the Frog Boy in, in uh, the sideshow. And so, but I, and I had always done that. I had done that. You know, in school, because, you know, I could do perfect arrows and all that. But believe me, if you're in an ice school, you know, the stuff that would get their attention was pounding stuff in my face. But I never thought I would The do shock that. value. Yeah. And I never thought I would do that on stage. I never thought I would do it on stage with my great act. I took it for granted. But I had a funny, a really funny routine with it, you know. And it showed um, the real side of me. So what I did was I did it on stage and I just... Did it more like, you know, more, I didn't use the voice simulator, but I deepened my voice and I'm, I talked like, you know, more like Space Ace. <laughs> you know, if you, you know, I'm a child of the eighties, but like Dragon's Lair and yeah. Space Ace with these incredible games. But, um, and, uh, Dexter, I guess his name was, it was the teenage, the skinny teenage guy and he would drink a potion or do something and he would become Space Ace, <laughs> you know? So that when I'm on stage, that's what I'm thinking. And it's almost like, you know, came, you know, the movie was, but like Gaston or something, you know, he's, he's just he's, out of this world, just yeah, very he's vibrant. Full of, he's, he, you know, and he's, and again, when, and then I understood it because then it really was one of my comic books because I used to draw mad scientists in my, in my comic books. And so it became very clear, you know, I looked at, and it was so much easier to write. It, it's really hard to write for yourself. You know what I mean? It's like, it's like, um, you know, it's like trying to sell yourself. A manager can sell the fuck out of you, or you could sell your friend. You could say, oh, you know, gotta hire my friend. But you trying to sell yourself it's is difficult. very difficult. And it's the same thing I find with writing, you know. Me writing for Rudy Kobe because I didn't know who I was. You know, I'm kind of an awkward person at parties. And, you know, I didn't know what my voice was on stage. And I've talked to Harry Anderson and people like that. Harry Anderson could certainly write for Harry the Hat, you know, the swindler. But for Harry Anderson, the guy that we know offstage, no. And, and so it it became very easy for me to write because I pretended that Lab Man was a Muppet, you know, essentially, or a Pee Wee Herman, you know. 
I mean, Pee Wee Herman is the model for my show, not David Copperfield. You know, he literally, he came to my show just a couple weeks ago at the Magic Castle. And, you know, and he, it, my crowning achievement <laughs> is that Pee Wee Herman loved my show. You know, 20 years ago, David Copperfield came to my show and he loved it. And he was incredibly nice to my mom, you know, and afterwards. And he, he told everybody about my show. We were right across the street from him. He was you know, performing for 6,000 people and my theater was 450, but it was the same people that owned theater. So ours was a gold, you know, beautiful, the gem theater in Detroit, beautiful. Nice. And, um, and it was funny, he was coming to town and I don't know if I, I'll talk about this. Yeah, yeah, maybe he thinks it's funny now, but you know, I was trying to sell tickets. So we we're trying to think of just stupid publicity things. And so he was going to be across the street. I already been there for months at the Little Gym Theater. He was literally going to be at the Fox, 6,000 seats across the street. And he was at the height of his fame. Claudia Schiffer, full on, everything. And I'm one of my best, dearest friends is Chris Kenner. I've known Chris Kenner, you know, for 35 years, you know, like closest friend in magic. So they were going to come to town. And I had a publicist who would do anything I said. So I said, here's what we're going to do. Let's... I'm going to, let's say, I challenge David Copperfield to a duel, a magic duel, because Detroit isn't big enough for two magicians. No, and it was like lab, full-on lab man, you know, um, I challenge you to a magic duel. And we were going to build a wrestling mat right in front of our theater. We were going to put a wrestling ring. And and our, so the, um, the, and we did, we put it out. It went out to the press and it was going to, and, and it was like, the rules were no flying, no chainsaws, you know, but it was like, it was literally magic versus science, you know, the beginning of that. And, um, and I don't think David thought it was funny back then, or I, I don't, because he didn't know me really. So I didn't know if he thought I was make, trying to make fun of him or trying to use his name, but whatever. So, you know, you know, they shut it down. <laughs> Some, I, let's, I don't know that it was his side that did that, but let's just say somebody, called the um, Boxing Commission of Michigan. And we're it was not, an illegal match. Yeah, it was an illegal match, unlicensed match. So we had to call it off, you know. <laughs> but he was nice enough to come to my show and and, uh, and be incredibly great, you know. How many television shows have you done? Uh, well, two big – well, I've done hundreds and you – know, I mean, wh- which one was the big break? I mean, as far – were you on a talk show or was it your first special? Well, I don't know. I don't even know how you... Here's the thing about the biggest break you can have, you know, Teller talks about, you know, being, you know, they have $300 million, but that the most important money Penn and Teller ever made was the first time you make 300 bucks a week doing what you like, right? Because that changes your life. Now you're doing what you love. The steady performance. Right. So when he, when, when Teller could make 300 bucks a week, he quit being a Latin teacher, you know? Similar thing. The most important... Um, thing and it used to be harder than it is now because of technology. But the most important thing back then was you have to have a great act. That's number one. Yeah, and I talk about this in my lecture book. That this, if you have a three minute act, you could travel the world tomorrow. But the other thing you need is a tape, a good videotape of that act. Now nowadays you can, you know, with, you got to remember back then there was no YouTube. You know, we there were four channels. There were three channels <laughs> originally before Fox came along. You know, and then I became, you know, you had David Copperfield on CBS. Doug Henning had NBC, right? They didn't really like Magic on ABC for whatever reason. They had specials later, a couple little ones, but very. And then David Blaine became ABC. Yeah. Um, 
but I got Fox. I was the first Fox magician, you know, because I was irreverent. But the but the most so the most important thing is coming up with a tape that you can use your, to sell to to other markets around the world. So the most important break I got was I went to Japan for um, Tono Nasaka for Magic Convention, and they put me on a, a TV show over there, and I got a good tape of the three minutes killing in. Um, uh, in front of an audience, and also it showed that it looked good on TV. And then the next big break was I took that tape and I sent it everywhere. And the biggest problem was I used to use a little plastic chainsaw from a toy store. Remember, I told you I made it, you know, for nothing on a waiter stand on you know on the stolen thing. And everywhere I tried to get on TV, they said, um, you, "Well, we can't have the chainsaw because the kids, you know what I mean? Because it's a family show. It's in prime time." And I was like, "Well, it's a Toys R Us." chainsaw <laughs> it's yeah we can't have it and there's one one show in um london wanted me so bad it would have been my first time out of the country even uh and i wanted to go so bad but they wouldn't let me do the chainsaw and they said we have an idea for you what if you have a perch and there's a woodpecker on there and then the woodpecker flies over on the cloth and pecks off your leg and i was like let me get this straight <laughs> you know who's going to make the audio animatronic flying woodpecker you know what i mean and they were said, and you can do it afterwards. You know, then you, can, you have the. So I had to say no to that. Uh, I did it one time on Shusha, X U X A. This woman from Brazil. She had a, the biggest kid show in the world, and I love Shusha. I mean, even now, she's in her fifties, probably, and she looks beautiful. But she had this great, crazy show. She wanted me to come on, and like I think she personally asked somehow if I could go on. And same thing, I couldn't do. Um, but it was the chainsaw. So I ended up. I was at the Comedy Magic Club, and they had a. For some reason, they had a two-foot-long shark, you know, like a fake shark. Uh oh. <laughs> no, I think Still? we're good. Yeah, I'll just double check. Okay, yeah. and she had they had like a fake shark, and I ended up using the shark to bite my legs off, which is <laughs> awesome, you know. So, um, so, so the most important TV show I did though was they wanted me to be on. Uh, it was Disneyland's. It was at, it was at, it was a Disney show, Disney Circus or something, you know, mm-hmm. some show like that. And they wanted me to go on, and I was in Atlantic City, and I was making money for the first time. I got my gig, and I was like, no, because I had gotten the taste of making money on TV, so they wanted me to do it. And they they offered me money, but I was going to have to lose money to go away from Atlantic City. And I was like, no, I don't really want to do it. So they kept offering me more and more money, and I was like, and then someone said, you should do it because it's it's Disney. it's prime time, yeah. and they were like. But we're not sure of the chainsaw. And I said, well, you know what? If I could do the chainsaw, I'll do it. Right? And then they, blah, 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 blah. It's plastic. It's a D. It's D. And they said, yes. Right? Um, and I think I even used a real chainsaw just to mess with. I brought a real chainsaw. And I said, so it's going to be a chainsaw. Yep, no problem. And then I said, and I want, and the other thing is, I want to do it in front of the castle. You know, I want to do it in front of Snow White's castle. Cool. They put a stage up. And I said, and I want Mickey. And Minnie and Roger Rabbit in the front row. And they went, okay. So that's what, they, and so I was, flew in four in the morning. They set up the stage in the middle of Disneyland. I did it for me. So then maybe that was the most important ever because every single time I sent out a tape, they would say, oh, we can't do the chance. And I said, I think Mickey Mouse says it's okay. And then I'd send it and they'd go, yep. So Mickey was the seal of approval. And strangely enough, using a real chainsaw, I've never had a complaint since. It, using the plastic one just was, you know, the red flag. You performed at Universal, didn't you? Did I perform at you know, Well, I shot my TV specials at Universal. TV specials. Yep, yeah, yep. Yeah. That was great. Um, how, how did you um, – what was the process of that? Was it hard to come up with a TV special or did you already have the, um, the idea of what your special was going to yeah. be? Yeah. 
Well, and that's again the most important thing. Again, it's it's the Star Wars idea of you have a backstory. You know, the, and the most important thing. You know, I did comic books, did Super Eight, then I found Magic. And that was the end. Never did any. I mean, I, I still do it all. You know, I storyboard everything like a comic book. You know, I film it like my Super Eight movies. You know, I mean, I essentially. Um, you know, I mean, my my shows are storyboarded. I know what I want. No, I mean, the most important thing, I think people sometimes get hung up on if they don't have money or if they, um, you know, if they go, oh, I'm in Cleveland and my parents are poor or I, I don't know anybody in show business. I grew up in upstate New York. The only other person in my town was Jeff McBride, but he, I only saw him once a, once a year for like 10 days at the Orange County Fair. And... Um, so I was in upstate New York, didn't know any other magicians. I don't come from a rich family. And that was the best thing ever because I had to use my imagination, you know. So imagination costs you nothing. So the most important thing is come up with that three-minute act. That's great because three minutes shows what the character is and shows that you're creative, shows what your world is. You're... And then you come up with another three minutes. That's as good as that. That's the secret. You know, don't try to do an hour at once. Um I forgot your question. I'm sorry. That's all right. Uh, just as far as process of when you were creating oh, a yeah. television show. So, yeah, the TV yeah. special, the, my, the thing was I, I came up with the, you know, the 10-minute version of Lap Band, which is the neon door where I'm stretching my arms and all that stuff. And then I came up with the talking version of Lap Band, you know. So I went from, you know, three minutes to 10 minutes for Atlantic City because I needed a longer act. Then I was at the Crazy Horse, you know, in Paris making money. But then I came back here and I wanted to go to 20 minutes with the talking. So I booked myself to, to um, Not Scary Farm, which is the haunted version of um, Not Berry Farm. It's an amusement park mm-hmm. because I was doing six shows a night. Crazy. And, and the other thing was I could try the nail as my talking routine. I had built the robot by that time too, just the robot, but you know, essentially it was a walking table at that time, you know, $20,000 table for no reason, because <laughs> I didn't know what it was going to become. And then, um, I had the idea for puppet boy forever. I was a big Devo fan. heard that song. The first time I heard it, I saw that trick, but I never thought I would actually do it on stage. It was something in my notebooks, but I love that song. I had a tape, a cassette tape of it that I almost wore out. Um, so I was going to do Not Scary Farm, and I said, you know what? Halloween show, I can get away with that. You know what I mean? And But that's all the only place I could ever do it. I want to do it there. So I put it in the show, and it was so strong, it became my closer from then on, you know? Um, so then I had 20 minutes, 25 minutes, and then I got the opportunity to go to the gym, maybe a year later or something. And I, because I had the talking material, I knew kind of what... What uh, I always thought that the Lab Man show, again, it was kind of based on P.B. Herman, you know. It was based on P.B. Herman. The le- way I learned how to write was his first special on HBO, the adult one, because mm-hmm. uh, I wanted to ha- use multiple characters. I was inspired by him in the 1960s Batman. But I didn't know how long should each character come in. And, you know, it's a different vibe when you're a solo person. So the way I learned, <clears throat> just timing, you know, timing-wise, how long is a character, you know, when does it overstay its welcome? I took P.B. This is a secret, and I told him this. It, um, I took his TV special and I transcribed it by hand in script form. So I would learn how to, you know, I did that with movie scripts that I like too. So I would learn the pacing, the vibe, you know, and I did that with his TV special over and over and over and over. So I learned, I got the rhythm, you know, no, not copying at all, but just 
you know, I kind of the you flow, know, the flow, exactly right. And and you know, you know, it's like any good show is like a roller coaster, it's ups and downs, and you know. And the other thing I based because I, I knew I would one day get. I wanted to go to Broadway, you know. So I figured what I wanted to do was I wanted to do a parody of a Broadway show. So that's why um, Nikki Terminator, the robot girl, she gets cut in half. And she, you know, it's like Pinocchio. She wants to become a real girl, or she, you know, she she sings a song at the midpoint. Because I saw so many Broadway shows that I snuck into as a little kid. Because I was, you know, I would sneak in um, half, at the halfway point. It's called second acting. You basically wear a sports coat and act like your parents are inside, and then you're going to sit down. I saw every Broadway show in the world like that, and uh, so I based on a Broadway show. I knew there had to be a number where the girl, the robot girl was saying to close the first half. And then at the end, she would get restored. And it was totally stolen. You know, I don't steal material, but I absolutely stole it. It's not stolen. It's based on the um, Little Mermaid. You're taking the structure. Yeah. No, but I'm, it, you know what I mean, when people ask me, so what are your inspirations? I go, the Little Mermaid and Pee Wee Herman. They think I'm kidding, but I'm telling you, it's, you know, you can almost get sued. It's so close. When, um, so you got out of magic for a while. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what 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 prompted that? Well, you know what? Here's the thing about here's the thing about me. I I've never done this for money. Never done anything for money. You know, um, whether I had a paper route when I was a kid, or or I worked in the hospital in the emergency room handling bodies, you know, putting them in the morgue, whatever. It was so I could. Um, do what makes me happy creatively, you know, and magic has always been that. I've always supported the show. All the money I've ever made goes back into the show. You know, Any, anything, when you see my show, that was your question, how hard was it to come up with a TV special? Well, I knew what I wanted to do because, again, the Star Wars principle, I knew what the world was. I, if I ever, you know, imagination's free, so I would just fantasize about what would my hour special be. So I actually got the offer from the president of Fox and he said, well, here's the, here, here's the, uh, he goes, here's the deal. We have a, a great spot for you, but it's in three weeks. I don't know if you can handle that. Otherwise, it'll be in the fall. Da, da, da. I was like, nope, let's do it. Shook hands right there. Three weeks later, not having a director, a set designer, anything, the first special um, was on the air. And I'm 100% happy with the way that came out. And it came out better, I think, because it was three weeks. Because nobody could tell me no <laughs> about anything. You know, so it was, it was my vision for better or worse, 100%. So, you know, don't be afraid to fantasize, you know, about, you know, like dream big because you, if you dream big and you keep getting better and better and better, you will get your opportunity, especially now when there's a thousand channels. Back then, only four. It was hard to get that spot, you know. Um, so anyway, I did that. I only had a couple goals when I started out. I wanted, to, I, I had three goals as a magician. I wanted to have my own TV special. That was number one, one of my prime time TV special. And I got to do two one hour specials in America. I had done a BBC hour two, twice the year before. I had done a, 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 uh, hour special in France. I'd done other versions of it, but it led up to the Fox show. And then I did two one-hour specials within six months on Fox. Prime time, Sunday night. You know, it's di that's different than being on, again, not putting anybody down, but like the A&E channel or something. Yeah. You know, I mean, my budgets were million-dollar budgets. They were real shows. I had the Muppets on my show. <laughs> you know? I mean, and, you know, Dick Clark producing it. So I got that goal. That was my number one. My other goal was to get to work the Crazy Horse in Paris because I knew that was the ultimate 
it's one of the dreams for magicians. Yeah, any, anywhere in the world. And very few, I mean, it's very, I, I worked there when the original boss was still there. Um, very few magicians, you know, really. And uh, so that was a dream. And, and, and dozens of naked girls. Right. So, um, almost. Yeah, no, keep going. No, no. I mean, so anyway, the, um, and then I want to be on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. I just missed that. I wasn't, I was too, just missed it just by a couple months, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and I didn't want to be on with Jay Leno kind of thing. That was not a goal. So I got everything. I got all that. And then um, I kind of, I got a little burnt out because I was doing, I was performing, you know, nonstop. And, um, and honestly, I didn't, I never wanted to perform. I got offered like Vegas, big rooms for, but you know, some of these, the contracts were like seven years or 10 years or something, you know, and I didn't want to do that. I didn't, I didn't feel like back then Vegas was different too. 20 years ago, Vegas was not as hip let's say you yeah. know what i mean there was no good music there was no there wasn't there was one nightclub i like electronic music and there was one kind of dark place you'd have to know about you know and now the music i like is taken over vegas you know so and then i i went through a period of all not just some people but a lot of people stealing from my show which now i know is a normal thing but back then because it'd be people i knew even but it I wouldn't say, well, it kind of hurt my feelings, but it was like, what the hell? You know, I go to conventions. It's like, you know, you're not going to get anywhere by doing this because I'm doing it. And I know the best agents in the world. I've already done those TV shows, yeah. but it didn't make sense. So kind of, you know, like the Brotherhood of Magic kind of turned me off a little bit because it was so much stealing. And it still is, you know. Um, so I got kind of burnt out about it. And I didn't want to go to Vegas. And I had achieved what I wanted to achieve. And to be honest with you, it... It was all pointing me towards Vegas. I just didn't want to do that, you know? So what I basically did was I pulled away um, from Magic, and I would just go and do big money TV things. Like, so I, you know, I, I only had to do six gigs a year, and it would pay for, you know. Everything you needed. Yeah. And um, I just needed a break, you know? And uh, and that's when I met Marilyn Manson. That was going to be my next question. When were you... When you were consulting with Marilyn, were you coming up with magic for Marilyn Manson or was it just uh, what kind of did you do with that? Yeah, he wanted to. He originally he this was for um, in 2003. He wanted to do um, he had this album called The Golden Age of the Grotesque. Great name, you know, and it was vaudeville inspired, you know. Mm Um, you know, he had a song called Vaudeville, but spelled V-O devil, you know, like that kind of stuff. And I'd always been a fan of him as a performer, not his music necessarily. I like beautiful people. I loved his videos and I like seeing him on MTV. And, uh, so anyway, his wife or his girlfriend at the time, um, who became his wife was Dita Von Tease. Now she's famous, but I knew who she was because, um, she, I liked burlesque in LA and I'd known her. Um, and her assistant, was my assistant when I would do these big electronic music clubs. That's mm-hmm. where I was performing. And um, so she had worked for Dita, and she said, oh, you know what? Marilyn Manson wants to put magic in his show. Do you think you could help him? And I said, well, I would be the one. Believe me. I just said, you know. And, and she she told me that he joined the Magic Castle and wanted to put magic in his show. And I said, well, is he a nice guy? You know, because I'm not interested to be, you know. And yeah. she was like, no, he's great, blah, 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 blah. And... Um, so, long story short, when I met him, we just, we hit it off. We became 
brothers. I mean, from the first moment, you know, uh, we met. And I walked, you know, he ended up borrowing one of my jackets and wore it on the, you know, he, I, I came out and because he wanted to pull his head off and sing a song, basically. So I'm good at that. You know, I have good versions of that. So I basically came out and boom, popped my head. And he was like, okay, you know. And he took my costume from Puppet Boy. And I said, yeah, put, you know, and he put it on. And he goes, whoa, wow, this would be great. Because believe it or not, he wanted to be the person in that costume. And I was like, well, well we could put someone else, you know. It's the, and he goes, well, I want to, you know. <laughs> I was like, okay. Yeah, I would so, have the fun. Yeah, no, exactly. And then he, I said, well, you know, we'll get, we'll get a jacket made more in your style, da, 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 da. And he goes, well, can I just use this one? <laughs> I was like, you know, and he's, you know, and the other the person who built all the costumes was um, oh, the famous, famous French um, a guy. Um, I forget his name now, but I'll remember it. But the, uh, Jean Gaultier <laughs> b- built his, um, all, all the costumes. and But he's going to wear my costume, you know, which was great. You yeah, know? The $20 lab coat. Or yeah, that. well, no, it was more expensive than <laughs> yeah. that. But, I mean, but it was literally the one I used for singing with Puppet Boy that I used at Not Scary Farm. And, you know, um, so very funny, you know. So we became best friends. And he, I... You know, showed him four legs, you know, and he was like, oh, my God. You know, I, I showed him the stretching arms. He became better at that than I am. You know, he was going on tour the next day to Europe and, um, you know, went to his house the next day, walked in with the four legs, you know, and he was like, oh, my God. And I said, well, here's the thing, dude. I don't think you should do four legs. Maybe. And he goes, no, I'd want to do three because it's there's something. About, there's a character in mythology. He's a genius. That's, a, that's like satanic. I mean, like scary with three. And I was like, yeah, but the problem is that. This is actually a hard thing to do. You know, like these arm stuff, I can get, I just, and he was like, well, can I try? And I was like, fuck it. I gave him my original set, like, <laughs> on the spot. Yeah. yeah. So we became really good friends. And then um, when he came back from that initial month, he brought me on tour with him. And um, and then, you know, he, he would, it would, so in, in the beginning, I just showed him stuff that I was even doing, and then we just adapted it for his show. For example, I showed him Nikki Terminator, the half-robot girl, which is my, my creation. That's probably the thing I'm most proud of, right? And um, so in his show, because he said, he, he was like, you would let me use that? And I was like, fuck yeah, you know, because it was fun for me. That got me interested. So I was, I used to call my, people would say, oh, I heard you're a magician. I was like, well, ex-magician, you know. Those people didn't know about my TV specials or whatever, you know. It was, it was awesome, you know. Um, and it was fun working in someone else's world. And it was like going on tour with your best friend. We became instant best friends, you know. So he, um, so, but for Nikki Terminator, for example, to make it more Manson-y, I made it look like his girlfriend. Yeah, I made, I took, I, instead of it being a chrome, you know, Soriyama robot, you know, um, you know, future tech, I made it look like a crazy mannequin, you know, like I, you know, it looked like Dita Von T's head. She picked out a wig that, you know, she styled it. It was wearing Dita Von T's underwear, you know, and it would bring out absinthe for him and he would drink it and have it, um, you know, so it looked like Dita would come out, he'd pour himself a drink. And then, like hallucination, start taking her apart piece by piece. It was so great because people would, the people there don't know. Like if you see me, come see me. You expect that when Marilyn met those people. You don't expect that. His biggest happen. fans, yeah, and there and there had been there for ten years. One of my friends from the shows, this girl named Julie Brockway, is her name, and she's became a really good friend. She just went to her 130th Manson show recently here in Vegas. So they they know. So when he starts taking apart Dita. You gotta see their faces. It's a different thing. You Was know? working for Manson. Did that bring back a resurgence to get you out to the Manson yeah, castle? Yeah. Yes, it did. That's what exactly what happened. Was I was on I was on you know the road with him for a couple of years, and you know um, at one point 
um, I went through a divorce, you know, and uh, because basically, well, it doesn't matter. We're, it, she's one of my best friends now, but it was like magic would take me out of town and she's a doctor, you know. So every time it took me out of town, she would become sad. But if I stayed home trying to make her happy, I would become sad because yeah. I'm not being what I am. It's it's a really difficult thing. It's it's a real dilemma for people. Like if you don't have somebody in your show, like Matt King, who you'll meet tonight, has a perfect situation, you know, because he, he has worked the same room for 15 years here. It's a dream. He's the nicest guy in the world. His wife's the nicest person in the world. But um, but when he'll tell you, I'm sure, he used to be a comedy club king. He would be on the road, you know, at least 10 months a year or something. I mean, I used to see him eight, at least eight months. And so and it's really hard, you know. So the people that have managed to make it work, God bless them, you know. Um, very, very difficult. So anyway, but I was paying for this house in Beverly Hills, you know, 90211, you know. But still, <laughs> Beverly Hills, yeah, palm trees, but expensive. And and it, I became so close at Manson, I was on tour with him. And he was, he was, um, he was, um, he, you know, I went on tour with him at more regular and would actually perform on stage with him, which is, so, it's a fantasy. You're performing in front of 50,000 people, you know, it's, it's a lot of fun. And with your best friend, you're on the bus it, with them all the time. It's exactly what you wanted to do because of watching those musicians from your past, you wanted to be exactly. on stage doing it's, that and, and that's exactly right, is that, you know, he eventually did a thing where he would pull off the, uh, Evan Rachel Wood, you know, we had, did a robot version of her, that was it. The head was 10 grand alone, you know, it looked real. But he would pull it off, and but for me, he would sing to it the same way that Bowie used to sing to the skull, you know what I mean? I was like, this is exact, and you know, and he was having, a, for example, he was having a feud with Alice Cooper. Alice Cooper hated him. And Manson, because Manson had said, you know, Manson's crazy. He says crazy stuff. And, but Alice Cooper would say things like, oh, Marilyn Manson, really original, you know, a guy with a girl's name wearing makeup. Who, you know, where would he get that from? You know, it was like, it was a feud for years. But I went, so I went to, um, Alice Cooper, who, my inspiration, you know, and I got backstage and I'm with him and he's, he's totally different. Manson's real. Manson's crazier off stage than he is on stage. That's different. He's really what you see on stage. He's, Doing weird stuff off stage, trust me. Living so so uh and then uh but Alice Cooper plays golf off stage and he's a Christian, boarding a Christian kind of guy, the great greatest guy in the world, but totally different. So backstage I was talking to him and he was like, Oh, what are you doing? I told him magic, da 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 da. And then as I was leaving, I said, you know what? I I'm just gonna say it. I actually um do Marilyn Manson show. And um and he goes, Oh, you know, I've never met him. Never talked to him. I said, no, I know, you know, things have been said from both directions, but I just want you to know that he admires you. you of course, you know, you, nobody can, nobody's inspired by somebody to that, you know, his life changed the same way my life did. And, but believe me, it's all respect, you know, and you guys should talk. And he goes, well, you know, Alice gave me his phone number and, and his, you know, email. And I went back to Manson and Manson was like, really? And I was like, yeah, really? And, you know, a year later, and they were in Transylvania or something. And I just had, came off the tour for whatever reason. It was real expensive to bring everybody through Russia and Transylvania. So I was like, well, I'll go home. That's cool. You know, they just brought the core band. And of course, Alice Cooper was at a music festival. And then they sang on stage together. They made up. You oh, know? That's and now they're really good friends. Now Manson and, and Alice Cooper have done shows together. Um, I just want to go back to real quick. Um, we were talking about Doug Henning earlier. Yeah. And one there question we go. that I'm trying to ask everyone is. Sure. Is, from what I know is before Doug Henning would go on stage to kind of get into the zone, he would 
before the show, he would make newspaper tears. That's what right. He would do. Oh, that's just funny. Never heard that. Tears. That's cool. um, a couple of people have told me that, so hopefully it's true. But um, did you ever have a like a, a Zen moment before you would step on stage? Was there anything that you did to prepare yourself to get into the Lab Man character before you stepped out in front of hundreds of thousands of people? Well, that's a great question. Um, well, you know what? Um, yeah, I mean, this is a personal thing, and you know, it's like I'm you know I'm not really a re- religious person. You know, I think I'm spiritual. I believe, you know, I mean, you know, I like to believe in the mysterious. You know what I mean? It's like, you know, I think coincidence is my religion. You know, I know when weird coincidences, not you were thinking of someone in the phone rings, but like really weird coincidences. Um, when they start happening, I know that something's up, you know, so in something's in the air. So what I try to do right before I go on stage, you know, is um, when I hear when I hear my name being introduced or it's the music right before I'm going to come on, whatever it is, I'll take my my hand and I'll put it under my jacket, you know, and I'll be wearing lab coats covered by costume changes, co- you know, I'll have ping pong balls stuck in my eyes with sunglasses on top of that and on and on and on, you know, I'm like wearing layers and it's craziest, but I'll always, right before I walk on stage, I have my uh, my chain on my key and my briefcase. Um, I'll always put my hand under my jacket and until I can actually feel my heart beating through all those costumes, um, you know, you normally before you walk on stage, I, I don't really get nervous, nervous, but nervous energy. Of course. But I want to, I, I feel it. And the reason I do that is because I've done it forever. It's just sort of whatever, whatever spirit or luck or whatever's in the air. It's just like, um, it just reminds me that this is happening now and I should be really thankful. Um, because, and this is, you know, maybe the most important thing I'll say in this whole interview, is um, when I did my TV special, it was my dream come true, you know. And and I have Dick Clark introducing me. The Muppets are on my show. It can't be better. And, and I remember right before I was going on thinking, boy, I'm glad I did those kids shows. Because all of a sudden we didn't have like no teleprompter and all, all the stuff was happening where I... And I was like, but I'm ready. I, if I could handle those Cub Scouts when I was 14 years old, I can handle this. You know what I mean? So, and, but I, but it was so crazy and you, you have to be the captain. Um, I didn't take a moment to enjoy it. You know what I mean? It was like, so, I mean, I'm incredibly happy with the way it came out. So sometimes what I'll do is Dan Sperry, who's a friend of mine, brought me on tour with him when, mm-hmm. when he did his first tour, Big Illusions and stuff. And, um, and I was also there when he did America's Got Talent, I think the first time, right? And, um, and I like people like that, my friends, I'll walk up to them right before they walk on stage at that big moment and say, just take a minute, you know, he's backstage super nervous and I just go, just calm down for a second. Just, just want to say this to you. This is one of the best moments of your life. Just Take it in. Look around because, you know, when you're on your deathbed, this is what you're going to remember. And right now is the, one of the best things that could ever happen to you. It's your dream coming true. You know, savor it, you know. And and so, you know, that's kind of what I wish I would have done that a little more. I Believe me, I enjoy myself all the time. But I think that's the best way because my next, my final question was going to be what advice do you have for magicians, for younger magicians, for people who are getting into it? I think that's perfect unless you have something else to add. No, you know, it's like um, – and the only other thing I'll say is this, which is really important. Um, you know, we've talked a lot about how, you know, I 
I like Star Wars or I like, um, you know, I, I, David Bowie is truly my hero or, or, you know, PB Herman or whatever. A lot of times magic isn't thought of as an art the same way music is or, you know, or opera or ballet or, you know, it's kind of sometimes it's thought of as, you know, the kind of a carny art, you know, kind of thing. But one thing that's most important, fuck that. Magic is the pinnacle of all arts, you know? Um, you know, before I became was on, I, I had straight A's right until I was in high school. And I was, they literally thought I was, you know, I went to my guidance counselor and he said, well, you know, what do you want to do now? You know, you have these straight A's. I was in you know, my senior year of high school and straight A's. What do you want to do? You could go to Harvard. You can go to here. You can go to here. And I said, you know what? I want to, what's your plans? You know? And I said, well, not exactly sure, but I'm going to become a magician. So I think I want to go for business here or this. And he goes, and he goes, whoa, 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 whoa. Let me tell you something. You know what? I have people come in here all the time and say they want to be actors. You know what? Only one out of a million people become successful actors. Um, and so, you know, it's great that, you know, magic is your hobby, but you're never going to be a magician. And I went, what should I be? A fucking guidance counselor? And I got up, I walked out. And then I failed at a high school. I mean, literally went from straight A's to going, wow, they, they don't believe in, you know, I just told you what my dream was. You don't believe in it at all. And, and, you know, you know, so what I want to say is this, when someone like Marilyn Manson wanted to do, you know, he, he did my robot in a show. He did the long arms. He had three legs on stage and he is without doubt the last great rock star. David Bowie is retired now, so he's the biggest, greatest real rock star. He did Rudy Copey material in his show, and I have no Marilyn Manson songs in my show. So magic is fucking cool. Period. You know? Be proud. It doesn't get better. So that's my advice. You know? Wear it with a badge of honor. Thank you. That was awesome. Thank you. Okay. That's fine. <laughs> All right. That was Rudy Colby, and I want to thank him again for doing this. <laughs> thank you. Rudy offered to give me a lift to the strip so I could get to my next interview at Harrah's Hotel and Casino. Finding a proper cup of coffee, I took my time and enjoyed the rare cloudy day in Las Vegas as I made my way to meet Mac King. <laughs> 